is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is The Full Story. The water was up to the edge of the gutter at four in the morning, and it just steadily rose from there. Um, At one stage, we were sitting on the lounge in the land room in ankle-deep water, and we could just feel it creeping up. It was coming up so fast. One week after historic floods hit Australia's east coast, Prime Minister Scott Morrison arrived in the northern New South Wales town of Lismore to declare a national emergency. This is designed to speed up financial support for residents. But as communities clean up their homes and businesses, there's anger and frustration, and many say government support has been slow and limited. How are communities coping as they try to rebuild their lives? And are they getting enough support to do this? We're standing on the veranda in water up to here. Yeah. A dinghy came in to get us, but we were told there were two old ladies around the front that were in distress, so yeah. we told them to go and get them. Yeah. They were going to come back for us. We didn't, I don't know where they went. We didn't see them again. Today, the aftermath of the East Coast floods. It's Monday, the 14th of March. So, Chris, tell me about where you were last Wednesday. So, last Wednesday, I drove into Lismore. Um, and it was the same day that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was due to visit. Christopher Norse is a reporter for Guardian Australia. It's pretty gobsmacking driving into Lismore. Right from the outset, you encounter just streets and streets and streets, just full of people's ruined possessions just out on the street in big piles. You know, you can barely turn down a street there without seeing, you know, ruined houses, um, destroyed lives. It's actually genuinely quite heartbreaking. And I drove in. The first thing I did was go and see Kim Strau and her wife, Sarah Jones, who live not too far from the centre of Lismore. This is my wife, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? I'm Chris. How you going? Holding up all right? They were in a similar situation. Their street just completely lined with huge piles of junk. You know, it smells a lot like a lot of the flood-ravaged communities. You know, there's a lot of sewage. I came into their house, which had been completely destroyed. There was, you know, the, the floor was unstable in parts. You know, you had to be careful where you stepped. There was barely anything left in there. Um, I came in and they were still sort of inspecting the damage, trying to work out, you know, what to do about walls that were seemed to be warping and, and coming apart. A lot of people are like, you know, you rebuild. How do you rebuild in a place that's going through this so often? Right. Like, do we need to sit down and have like a really open discussion where we're thinking outside the box? Mm. Like we can't just keep doing what's always been done. And I also asked them a little bit about, you know, Morrison coming to town, which is kind of the talk of the town on that particular day. Mm. And Kim said to me, we don't need someone picking up our hand to shake it. Scotty, he's our boyfriend. We can't wait to catch up. Um... <laughs> so they told me that they were staying well away from Morrison and, and the circus that kind of surrounded him. Then I went across the town to the emergency operations centre at Lismore's council chambers. So this is where um, Morrison had chosen to do his press event for the day. 
I went there and immediately, you know, you, you encountered this fairly significant size protest. No more compromising! The water is rising! No more compromising! The water is rising! There were a lot of climate protesters there, a lot of people holding placards saying, you know, this is what climate change looks like. It's not strange, it's climate change, that sort of thing. And there were people speaking about, you know, the need to act on climate, the need to do more to give affordable housing to people who were um, left homeless by the floods. And, you know, a lot of pleas for people not to forget, particularly the, the southern part of the Northern Rivers, which has been absolutely devastated, but probably hasn't got quite as much media coverage as, as places like, I guess, Lismore and, and, and Mullumbimby and the like. So when the Prime Minister did front the media, what happened inside? So Morrison used the event to, to announce more disaster assistance funding for people who had been affected, um, which is was good. Um, so particularly people in, in the Richmond Valley, uh, Lismore and the Clarence Valley local government areas were also sort of given more money. They were told that they'd be eligible for, for two more weeks of the $1,000 disaster recovery payment, um, which is sort of available from mid-March. They also committed a lot more money uh, to support the Northern Rivers in region in general. So that was $31 million for local mental health support services, $10 million for children's mental health, and $25 million for emergency relief uh, and food relief and financial counselling, that, that sort of thing. So Morrison, at the time, you know, he sort of said, look, you know, I know this, this support isn't going to be enough for people in Lismore. Um, and he said, you know, the damage here is, is clearly on a, on a whole other scale. Now, this was the first time the Prime Minister's visited the region. We know he was isolating with COVID-19 when the floods first began. How was he received by the media at that press conference? Pretty heated, I would say. I mean, they often are. You know, they're often pretty testy affairs. But this one was particularly heated. Um, so there were a lot of local journalists there. And obviously, they had lived through this, right? So they had seen things firsthand and were pretty furious about it. There was one journalist there who was asking the Prime Minister who he should be blaming for the fact that there was no way that people could get through to triple zero on the day, which is insane when you think about it. I can't imagine the, the panic that you'd feel um, at that moment. Prime Minister, Australians couldn't get through to triple zero. Australians couldn't get through on triple Let's just do this civilly and let's, I'm happy to take questions one at a time. Um, there was also, you know, a lot of anger around the response. There was some real frustration around the fact that state and federal governments had been pretty slow in getting boots on the ground. There is a perception really widely held that, you know, the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, should have been on the ground quicker and at a greater volume. Scott Morrison defended the ADF. The resources move and they come in as you're seeing now, but they're not available on a moment's notice. And I think it's unrealistic uh, to have that set as an expectation. He also sort of stressed that this, this was quite unprecedented. You know, this flood was not foreseen, way, way, way more significant than anything the region had, had ever experienced in the past. Um, and Morrison said, you know, he also understood that, that there was a lot of emotion and, and frustration and anger among flood survivors during this disaster. There were also a lot of questions about, you know, the links between floods like this and the way that the federal government deals with the climate crisis. So he was asked, you know, why his government wouldn't do more 
in the face of extreme disasters like this to get itself off of its reliance of coal and gas. As more Australians are impacted by extreme weather events, mm. are you concerned that more and more people are going to become very angry because they don't think your government is doing enough to wean Australia off coal and other fossil fuels? Well, I'd make two points. Obviously, climate change is having an impact here in Australia, as it is in every country around the world. And Morrison sort of responded that... Yeah, the government's doing great on climate change and that, you know, Australia can reduce the emissions all that it likes, but it's not going to change the fact that places like India and China are still emitting huge amounts. Tell you what's not going to fix climate change. What's not going to fix it is just doing something in Australia and then in other developing countries, their emissions continue to rise. That won't change the climate here in the Northern Rivers. Probably not what people wanted to hear <laughs> and sort of uh, misses the point slightly. But anyway, uh, there was a lot of questioning around climate change as well. It sounded like a pretty fiery press conference. How did other Lismore residents respond to the Prime Minister's visit that day? So it was, I think, fair to say that it was a, a very tightly uh, managed visit. So he wasn't sort of walking down the streets in public um, meeting locals randomly, uh, I think they probably learnt the lesson of the 2019 bushfires when Morrison obviously received a pretty hostile reception. Mm -hmm. But his second scheduled visit was to a ruined ice cream factory, uh, Norco, which is in Lismore's south. And when I got there, there was a, a lone woman with a placard called Sarah Moran. She was waiting for Morrison there. She'd been waiting there for two hours, she told me wasn't anybody else, just her. And when he didn't turn up, she took her placard and she went up onto the street and was soliciting honks from the various cars that went past. Uh, her placard said slow-mo. And she sort of made the point that, you know, a lot of people who are working there have lost their houses and um, the government hasn't offered them anything near what is a living wage to support them while they try and get back on their feet. They know what he's here for. Yeah. Oh, no. It's here for the photo op, but won't actually talk to him. Yeah. Did you try and say something? I yelled at him for a good, I yelled at him for 10 minutes. Yeah. Because there was no one else here. Yeah. Um, and I, like, my chest hurt. Yeah, right. I just said, look, because I watched a bit of the press conference, my phone was going flat, just charging it in the car. Yeah. Um, he hasn't even offered a living wage. Yeah. It's not even a living wage. And you're talking about people who were poor before. Yeah, sure. How dare you? There were also two others who were, were outside that factory, people who've lost everything, who were just seeking some reassurance. So their names were Marcus and Leonie Beck. We're low ground. Marcus and Leonie were in a part of Lismore, actually just 500 metres down the road from that ice cream factory, where the floods were particularly bad. So they said they got hit from all sides. They showed me a, a video um, that they shot while they were in the middle of this disaster of them wading through their house. You know, the water's kind of up above their waist. Their fridge was just floating around the house. All of their possessions were just completely destroyed and they, you know, were just making their way up onto the roof in pitch black with torches. You know, they had their dog, their cat up on the roof and they were stuck up there for quite a while. Well, I was on the roof for about six hours. Um, my husband's brother-in-law came in his boat um, and picked him up to go and save an old man who was drowning. 
Um, three hours later, they came back to get me off the roof because I were out saving people. They've lost everything and they wanted to talk to Morrison about what they were going to do. You know, they are hoping that they're going to get a caravan through a government assistance program. But if they don't get that, you know, they're effectively homeless and they just wanted to talk to, to Morrison about that. Um, and they told me that as he was leaving, they approached one of Morrison's representatives and asked for five minutes with the Prime Minister and they were told he was too busy, he had a deadline to meet um, and had to go. So, Chris, you've been reporting in flood-affected communities for a few days now. What are some of the other stories that you've been hearing? Yeah, so I got here after the worst of the floods. Um, so the waters had receded by the time I got here and my goal was to sort of talk to as many people about what comes next, what they're facing now in terms of assessing the damage and what they're planning to do and what they need from governments. So when I was talking to people, you know, a lot of them were just starting to return to their properties or they were in the middle of cleaning up their properties or coming back to deal with insurance issues, that sort of thing. You know, there was a, a really common theme among the people that I talked to and that was that a lot of them feel completely forgotten as they go through this really difficult process of trying to rebuild. They feel like they've been completely left to their own to do this, which is a really hard thing for people to take. Mm. Um so I visited a caravan park in Chindra, which is just on the banks of the Tweed River near Tweed Heads. Pretty much everyone there is uninsured. A lot of the people there didn't have a great deal before the floods and now they have next to nothing. And, you know, in the two caravan parks that I visited, there's, there's six in that area, but the two that I visited, there were 180 homes destroyed out of a total of 220. So a huge devastation, huge level of devastation. So when I got there, I spoke with a woman named Linda and her husband, Pete. They were sort of in the process with a whole bunch of volunteers of cleaning up. We spoke to them next to a big generator, which was sort of powering the high-pressure hoses that they were using to clean off everything. Probably just chat here. Yeah, do you want to see me car? <laughs> oh, yeah, Pete, show me. Yeah, we can go. Let's go around there. Linda told me... A lot about what had happened to them. So their their situation is really quite horrific. So Pete has stage four lung cancer. It's terminal, so he's extremely ill. They were trapped by the floodwaters. You know, they told the story of the water climbing up through the caravan up to their waists and them not knowing how they were going to get out or who was going to rescue them. There was no SES. Um, there was no emergency services. It was all happening while Pete was struggling to breathe because he was incredibly sick and, you know, they, they were there for two hours and his breathing was becoming worse and worse and it was increasingly dire for them. So while we were there, one of Linda's friends, Tanya Slavin, was there scrubbing the walls of any mould and, and Tanya had also set up a fundraiser for them to help them get through. And we just had random people in and out all day Saturday and Sunday and other friends out of the bike club came down Saturday and Sunday as well. And these people have been here since yesterday. And they just showed up out of the blue. Yeah, Tanya put a call out on Facebook for helpers because she was here on her own because I said, I can't come down yesterday, I couldn't cope. And she said, that's okay, um, I'll put the call out. She said, now, now we're here. Yeah. But, um, just devastating. I got lucky, my clothes, I'd been sorting my clothes out. So all my clothes were on a pile on the floor, not in the drawers where they should have been. Yeah, yeah. So 
um, Tanya took those to the laundry and she spent four hours Saturday night washing and drying all my clothes. Amazing. When they got the chest of drawers out with all Peter's clothes in, they'd swollen shut. And by the time they got them open Saturday, yeah. they'd all got mouldy. The bed was mouldy, the sheets, the blankets, everything was mouldy. Jesus. It doesn't take long. No, it doesn't. This part of Australia is no stranger to floods. We've heard of a number of people who experienced hardships after the 2017 floods as well. Is that something you heard about in Chindra? Yeah, absolutely. So this this site was flooded in 2017 as well. So it's it's right on the banks of the Tweed. It's really low lying. So it's it's you know in a really significant area of flood risk. What that means really for the people who live here is that insurance is prohibitively expensive. You know, for a small site in a caravan park, it's $10,000 a year for flood insurance. So these people who live here, a lot of them are from low-income backgrounds of social disadvantage. That is just not possible at all. It's not. I don't think it would be possible for a lot of people wherever they live, but particularly in these parks. Yeah. Well, they only just got back on their feet from, from the, the last 2017 flood. So, what's well, next for you guys? I mean, it's, I know it's a hard question to ask, but... Um, once the floor's replaced, we'll move back in and go from there. That's the hardest bit. And I'm, once we're in, I'll sort through whatever's there and see what we can do. We've got to do it because we can't afford to go anywhere else. Yeah, if you've got no insurance, that must make it really difficult to rebuild, let alone move somewhere else. Chris, I also spoke to a woman named Louisa Duffy who lives in Tweed Heads. She's one of the owners of a childcare centre in Lismore called Me and My House, which was also not insured against the recent floods. In fact, she said they weren't able to get insurance after the 2017 floods. She said they could get it for everything else but floods. The minute you put Lismore's postcode in, they won't touch you for flood insurance. We would have paid any excess or paid any premium to be to remain insured. Is that common for the people you met in Lismore as well? Yeah, really common. The people that I spoke to in Lismore, you know, the, the story is is pretty similar. Either they deny most insurers will just deny them flood insurance outright and just won't make it available, or they'll make it so expensive as to be prohibitive. So it's a huge issue. It's a really difficult situation for people. It's easy to sit back and say, "Why are you living in a you know such a risky spot?" But, you know, people have built lives here in these towns and these cities. Mm. A lot of them don't have the means to actually move to a bigger city or to move elsewhere. You know, it's just completely unrealistic to to sit back and, and criticise people for for living where they live um, yeah. when, you know, that's the only option that's open to them. Yeah, it sounds incredibly difficult. When I spoke to Louisa, she said that they're planning to keep the business in Lismore. And she said that when she was finally able to get in and start cleaning it up with staff members, the enormity of the damage was really quite confronting for her. Uh, I don't think photos do it justice. The thing that hits you is the muck, like the dirt, the smell, the, the state of damage. It was like someone had ransacked the whole place, but then on top of that, it's wet and there's probably an inch of mud that goes right through floor level. It lines the walls. Our roof had collapsed, so the water had obviously just gone roof high. And so in parts of classrooms, the roof had fallen down. There's nothing. Every single thing that has been contaminated by that flood water has to be taken out. 
And Louisa told me she's got staff who've lost their homes as well as their workplace in these floods. And she says they're going to need a lot more government support to get by over the coming months because it's going to take a long time to clean up the childcare centre and get them all back to work. Trades is going to be the thing to get people to come to Lismore and start this in material. At the moment, there is a shortage of building supplies anyway, before the flood. You can't get your hands on gyprock. You can't get your hands on timber. It's really hard to sort of lock down a builder or a carpenter or a plasterer. The cost of building has gone up by 30-40% since COVID. So these were all pre-flood. Now you've got three quarters of a town that's been decimated that are going to need all of this. Where's it going to come from? Next, are flood-affected communities getting the support they need? Chris, we've heard criticism from locals that the ADF was deployed by the federal government too slowly and that once they did get boots on the ground, they were quite limited in the assistance that they could provide. Do you think that criticism is justified? I mean, it's it's true to say that a lot of people here do feel that frustration. What I saw suggested to me that the ADF, in fact, were active in the early parts of the floods. It was perhaps in a way that wouldn't have been apparent to a lot of people. Now, I've spoken to helicopter crews who were up in the air in the middle of the floods, flying out to the most remote parts of the northern rivers to rescue people whose houses had been hit by landslides and, and they were trapped. You know, those helicopter crews said to me, the entire time they were in the air, the ADF were also in the air and they were out winching people to safety in incredibly difficult situations. Like we're talking extreme weather, really low visibility, dangerous flying in the middle of the night, you know, you know, I think it's it's a difficult one. It, it I, I completely understand the frustration, but I also think it's untrue to say that the ADF were not around. Um, I think it's fair, you know, for people to sort of be frustrated and, and critical of, of the speed of the response um, and the scale of the response by the ADF. And, you know, my colleagues, Callum Walquist and, and Josh Butler, reported that, you know, the ADF had sort of defended how quickly they were able to respond, saying, you know, they, they were moving into affected areas as soon as weathering conditions allowed them to. And there are now more than, you know, a 1,000 ADF personnel who have been deployed to northern New South Wales and there's more than a 1,000 in Queensland. Having said that, you know, the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrette, has himself apologised for the emergency response um, and he's admitted that certain aspects of it weren't adequate and he's even promised to sort of review emergency resourcing in, in the future, which I think is, is a good thing. Cause, and I might just add as well that one thing that has become really clear is that the SES locally were completely overwhelmed, um, completely overwhelmed, and that's not a criticism of the SES in any way. It's just a point to be made about the level of resourcing that they have um, and their ability to respond to a disaster of this magnitude. Pretty much everyone I've spoken to has said that they tried to get help through either the SES or, or local emergency response and struggled massively and were instead kind of relying on volunteers to turn up and save them. So that's not an indictment of the SES, it's just a, a, a sign of how overwhelmed they were during this, I think. 
As you mentioned, Chris, there are going to be more disaster payments for many of the flood-affected towns. Now that you've visited some of these places, do you think this will be enough? So what I'm seeing here at the moment is this really stark divide between people. People who have money um, and were able to afford insurance and who have some savings, they have been hit hard. There's no doubt about that, and and everyone here has been hit hard. But I guess their thinking for the next few months is is kind of different. It's, okay, how do we get through this period until the insurance money comes? Where do we stay? How do we go about rebuilding? Or should we move away, find another place to live? But then among people who don't have anything, so don't have huge amounts of savings, don't have great incomes, don't have flood insurance, the question is quite different. It's where am I going to live? How am I going to keep myself from being homeless? Like how am I going to be able to afford to rebuild because the prospect of moving away is extremely difficult. I think that there's, you know, there's different ways that people are grappling with this and the scale of this. And it's just really hard to see, particularly for those people who are disadvantaged, how, how they're going to get through it. Thanks to Guardian reporter Christopher Norse, who's been reporting from northern New South Wales communities affected by recent floods. You can read Chris's article, I Can't Afford to Go Anywhere Else, the New South Wales Caravan Park Residents Devastated by Floods at theguardian.com. You can also find out more on the website about the floods and what's been happening on the ground from Chris and also reporter Elias Vasante too. We'll post links to some of their articles on the full story page. This episode was produced by Laura Briley-Newton, Jake Morecambe, Carla Arnold, Karishma Luthria and me. Daniel Simo did the sound design and mixing. Full Story's executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and Laura Murphy-Oates. That's it for today. Catch you next time.